think that's our role. Story is not a tweet. It's not 140 characters. It's not about branding. It's about long-term understanding who you are, your identity, your soul, your, your longevity, and about sowing the seed for seven generations in the future. You know, it's long-term. And that's the approach that we are going to take as stewards of the art form. Greetings and welcome to the Unleashed Generosity podcast, exploring the intersection of faith, service, philanthropy, and community. I'm your host, Aaron Scott. Thanks for tuning in for episode two. One of the links between episode one and episode two is um, the town of Jonesboro, which is mentioned in both episodes. And if you're not familiar with the region that I call home, uh, Northeast Tennessee, I want to just give you a little snapshot, a little context, so you have a little better understanding of of where our first two guests from our first two episodes live and work. Northeast Tennessee, Southwest Virginia is a wonderful area, has some larger towns like Bristol, Johnson City, Kingsport, but really surrounded by a much larger, more rural area. So Jonesboro is actually Tennessee's oldest town, and it happens to be the home to the International Storytelling Center, one of the wonderful tourist attractions that our region has to offer. Today's guest is Kiran Singh Sarah, who is the president of the International Storytelling Center located in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Uh, it's a wide-ranging conversation. We have wonderful stories that he shares, not only about the art form of storytelling and the importance of the arts and the humanities and our culture, uh, but the ways that that has intersected with his own faith and his own spirituality. He tells stories about his upbringing, about the importance of family and the way families help us understand the concepts of faith traditions and how those um, impact our own growth and development as people and teach us to be generous and to be loving and caring towards others, how those things can lead towards peace building and making this world a better place on a macro level. So just a wonderful wide-ranging conversation, and I think you'll really be inspired by this conversation with Kieran. Kieran, thanks for joining us for the podcast. I appreciate nice. you taking some time. No problem. It's good. Saturday morning, got my coffee or tea, actually. Yeah. It's not coffee, it's tea. It's like my third cup. COVID-19 routine, make a big flask of a plunger of coffee. I get through that and then I start on tea. Okay. I've got my perfect cup. Nice. Good. I'm well, I'm glad to know that you're in your perfect state of mind to give us very thoughtful, reflective, I wouldn't say perfect, answers. But as can be. <laughs> but tell us a little bit about who you are, uh, what you do for work, um, and just a little background on you. My name's Kieran, and um, I run the International Storytelling Center based in Jonesboro. It's a nonprofit organization, produced the National Storytelling Festival, Storytelling Live, which is the 26 weeks artist in residency program, many other programs that we do, um, outreach and youth at risk programs and uh, storytelling for peace building. And so that's what I do. I've been lived in Johnson City, actually. I work in Jonesboro, live in Johnson City, and um, I lived here since 2013. In the United States, since 2011. But I originally came here on a peace scholarship to study at University of North Carolina and Duke University. Hmm. for two years on a Rotary Peace Fellowship based on some of the work I was doing back in Scotland for about 10, 15 years, actually. Then I focused on storytelling as my kind of, as the tool, which I believe is one of the greatest tools to build peace. And and then in 2013, I was offered the position to oversee the institution of the International Storytelling Centre. That's awesome. So where are you from originally? Uh, I'm born in South England. Cool. And I moved around and, you know, studying and working and living in different like Ireland, Northern England, Spain. And then I moved to Scotland in 2001. I lived in Scotland for 10 years. Interesting. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons, I mean, in addition to your work at the Storytelling Center, I know that you'd had a lot of just kind of interesting life experiences. So you bring a lot of different perspectives beyond uh, this region has a lot of folks. I'm not originally from Northeast Tennessee either. I'm originally from Ohio, but I know that there's a lot of folks who were born here and raised here and live here. And, um, you know, so that's 
that's a beautiful thing and that you have these intergenerations that take care of each other and live here and really know the place and there's a rootedness. Uh, but at the same time too, it's nice to get people from other perspectives and walks of life and other parts of the world to come in and kind of enrich that. Um, so how long has the International Storytelling Center been around? And tell us a little bit about what drew you to that position. So the center is almost 50 years old. It began 1973. Um, by my predecessor, Mr. Jimmy, Jimmy Neal Smith, that came up with the idea of creating um, a national storytelling festival, which became the world's first public event exclusively devoted for the art form of storytelling. And then that became the flagship, which is now obviously about 10,500 people that come. And the center is just over 20 years old and was the kind of um, the center, physical building, the center that would be a place, both a performing arts space, but also a think tank for storytelling. It's a mm-hmm. research uh, lab for storytelling. It's a, it's mm-hmm. a grassroots community center. It's like the church for story, you know, yeah. for storytelling. And it's also a, um, an idea that we can spread across the world. So it's a kind of a home place. What drew me to it was this idea Two reasons. One was I really needed a job. Um, <laughs> I had no money. I just graduated after UNC being a student, and I didn't even have enough money to buy a plane ticket if I, if I had to leave wow. the country. And I, I had to get a job within three months or leave the country, and I couldn't even afford a plane ticket. So I'd had, you know, put my money into graduate studies with the hope and belief and the faith that something really good would happen. And I, put my hope and faith that I was on the right journey, that I would, yeah. on a spiritual journey, this was my calling. I knew it was my calling. I knew it was the right thing to do. And I put my faith in that. And and I gave up a really well-paid position back home in Scotland and status mm-hmm. and mortgage and all that sort of stuff. I realized that, it, you know, this was the calling. This was what I was searching for and what I was asking for when I put my call out to the universe, which is really interesting because... My phone that's recording this right now is currently yeah. sitting on a book, resting on a book mm-hmm. um, called The Universe Story. Okay. But I put a call out to the universe and like, and it kind of answered, and you know, I got an answer, which was this, you know, Global Peace Scholarship. Mm. And it was a, a chance to kind of really embrace that. So when I, and I realized in, in the work that I was doing ever since 9-11 to bring communities together, especially faith communities, was the essence of all the faith communities, the dialogue, the connection, was, you know, a story. Mm. It was the story of where we come from, who we are, identity, beliefs. It's the stories that we defend, the ideas, the stories that we wish to hope for. It's the, the unpacking of, you know, the things that we yearn for, a sense of belonging, a sense of place, cultural and faith and religious traditions, whether national identities or religious identities, they're based on story and everything is, there are things that we defend, things mm-hmm. we go to war for, things that we would give our lives for. And so it's, it's a binding force as well. It's an incredible force. And, and so when I focused on my peace scholarship, I really honed that in. I did a micro study on particularly individuals that had experienced homelessness. Mm-hmm. And I recorded and lived where people that are in a homeless shelter as part of my work Mm. and became friends of a group of men in a men's homeless shelter. And we would record stories together. We would collaborate. We'd mm-hmm. write poetry. We'd go for walks. We would uh, sit up at four o'clock in the morning smoking cigarettes and uh, on a park bench and talk. And we yeah. had these most beautiful conversations. We shared our lives. And I recorded these conversations. And, mm. and my, my, my own research was, called, was about the search for home. And mm. it was the aesthetics of home. And how home exists both in memory and desire and wish and want and a place of happiness. And when we connect to this place of home that's important to us, whether it's the smell of our grandmother's cooking, the memory of our grandmother's cooking, or the desire to feel part of a belonging to a community or the yearning to go back to a place that we haven't, we've been taken from. Mm -hmm or the stories that we carry with us over thousands of years, 
in our traditions. These places exist in this home space in the mind, and it's an idea. And so it kind of helped me to kind of reinforce this idea of storytelling being more than a tool, but a spiritual guide, in a sense. 2013, when I graduated, somebody asked me a question when I graduated, said, what's next for you? And it was a public, public presentation. There was hundreds of people present, and it was being globally live-streamed to my family back home and across the world. And they asked me that question, what are you doing next? And I said, I have no idea. I'm looking for a job but I will go anywhere in the world where I am needed for the skills that I have. Yeah. And that evening, somebody said, there's a job at the International Storytelling Center. You'd be perfect for it. Oh. And I found out about the center, never heard of it before. Yeah. And I realized its mission to connect the world through the art form of storytelling. I applied for the job. I came to Jones before the interview. They had 80 applicants. They shortlisted it to three. I was the third interview. They said they're going to let everybody know next week. I left there. It was a Friday. I drove in my really crappy little car that I had for like more for $200. <laughs> and I drove two-wheel drive. And I, I left Jones, but I was driving towards D.C., got into Virginia border. It started to thunderstorm with rain. Mm-hmm. And it was my car was swaying across the road. These big trucks were coming past me. And I thought, if I get offered this job, First thing I'm going to do is ask for an advance so I can buy a four-wheel drive because there's no way I can live in the mountains with a two-wheel drive. Yeah. And then literally what happened next, I get a phone call. So I pull over the car next to a Burger King huh. and I phoned up. It was the chair of the board, Miss Thelma Kid, And she goes, we couldn't wait till next week. Anonymous decision. The job is yours. Wow. And I said, can you give me the weekend to think about it? And I knew it was a big decision because it's not a job you take lightly. Yeah. This is a big commitment. And then I drove to DC, sat with a community that I'm a peace community I'm part of, mm. and asked them for counsel. And they all helped give me counsel. And I asked, I wanted their viewpoints to help me see it, unpack pros and cons and sure. life decision. And by the Sunday, I made up my mind that it was the right thing to do. And I phoned up and I accepted the position. And I said, Can I have a, a $2,000 forward so I can buy a car? <laughs> and I bought myself a Subaru. Nice. Four wheel drive. And I packed my longings. Two weeks later, I moved to East Tennessee. That's interesting. I mean, you've used the term calling a number of times, and that's a great story. But I also was going to ask you about how you discerned that sense of calling. And, and part of the answer you just gave is, is part of the way we discern our calling and in the, way, the way we understand our own narratives, going back to your idea of story, is through community, right? Is through these relationships with other people that can see different perspectives of our own lives, that can see things about ourselves that we can't see. Can you unpack some of that a little bit more for us? What are some of your sort of the faith or guiding principles or values that are most important to you that help you understand your sense of calling and what did draw you to the kind of work that you do? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think when I, and I go back to my earliest teachers and who are my inspirations, and there's, there's certain reasons that memories stand out to you. There's certain events that happen in my life that stand out to me. And I wouldn't necessarily say they come from one particular faith tradition because I think spirituality is fluid. And when we're exposed to different ideologies, we learn from different ideologies. I grew up Sikh, but doesn't mean I wasn't influenced by other traditions. Mm. And I was actually really fully encouraged to observe and learn from different traditions. You know, there's a folklorist saying that, you know, stand in the wave of culture and let that wave of culture, the stories, immerse your entire being, Mm. which is a different approach to say, you know, taking a bit of that water from that culture and observing and analyzing it in a laboratory. Sure. I'm not trying to study other people. I'm trying to be with people, be present with people. And that's what the same when you embrace faith traditions is that you're part of it. Embrace it. The poetry, the stories, the language, the food. Embrace all traditions, then you'll understand the greatest tradition, the tradition of our humanity, which binds us. And so I go back to those lessons that my mother taught me, but one of them was, you know, when she made me clean the shoes of hundreds of pilgrims when I was about eight years old uh, outside a Sikh temple, when the first thing you do is take your shoes off. And she said, rather than go up and pray in the prayer room and bow your head, I want you to clean the shoes of everybody. Mm. 
And I thought I was being punished, but what she was teaching me was this practice called seva, which in Sikhism is the highest form of prayer. Mm. And the highest form of prayer is an, is, a, is an action. It's almost like a verb. Sure. It's, uh, and it's community service. Mm. That you pray with your feet. You pray in action. You pray in activity. You serve yeah. people. And never be to be ashamed of getting on your knees and cleaning the shoes of your fellow humans. When you serve others, you are serving the children of God. Mm. And that's that humility, that idea, which I know exists within, you know, Jesus in the washing the feet of his disciples. And yeah, many I, traditions. I was thinking of that exactly. And, you know, in Islam, when they talk about, you know, always serve the food to a traveler, because that traveler is God coming to your door. So, in a sense, when I, when I say that, I think a lot of it comes from actual values taught to me mm-hmm. that I was exposed to. And the other side of it was to trust your instinct, your heart. Mm-hmm. When something feels right, there's a reason for it. Mm-hmm. And you, when you learn to listen to the, the feeling, the body, you learn to listen to your mind and your body and your body movement, if you can almost close your eyes when you hear something, you know it's the right thing to do your body moves forward. Mm. You, mm. And sometimes it takes time to process. Sometimes our heart knows quicker than our mind mm. because our, our heart is endless. And that energy of love and connection and instinct and soul connections that we have to the greater universe, we're, all already, we're always part of it. The force of energy and spirituality is endless, timeless, without form. And it, it has it knows no end and so that we're part of that when i got the email come through saying you've been awarded this scholarship to go to the united states it felt right it mm-hmm. felt this is what i'm supposed to do and i'm supposed to go on this this journey and it was a hard thing to do to decide you know because i had to say goodbye to you know people lovers you know ex lovers or and people, that was hard, you know, it was a lot of emotions to kind of process. Mm-hmm. But I knew I wouldn't be coming back. It was going on a, that journey. I gave away all my possessions because I didn't mm-hmm. need them. I gave away everything I owned. And I kept everything in five IKEA boxes. Mm-hmm. My best friend said, buy five clear IKEA boxes and put your life into that and give everything away. And my best friend is Catholic, devout Catholic. Didn't Jesus say something about that in the Gospels? I don't so know. Have and give it to the poor. Yeah, that. I'm not surprised that your Catholic friend said that because there's a part in the Gospels where Jesus commands a rich young ruler to do just that because he could see that the man's wealth was really what was standing in the way of his ability to truly follow and move forward, oh, like you were saying, to lean into that. So great, I didn't know that. There's a there's a parable in the Sikh traditions that teaches the same thing hmm. about kind of giving up your wealth. Yeah. Um, to see the beauty of what you have. And I gave away like seven carloads to the thrift stores mm. and the tennis racket in the TV to the little girl that lives next door and told her I want to see her on Wimbledon one day. I, I paint these big elephant paintings. I went, I phoned up a domestic abuse, women's domestic abuse center. Mm. I said, would you happen to be looking for anything, a painting? I have a painting to give. And because we're looking for an elephant painting, I paint elephants. In that moment, it was the right thing to do. They knew they were looking for something, and I had what they were looking for. Hmm. I mean, how how detailed can you get? Kind of an affirmation of that calling. To, yeah, absolutely. And then when it burdened yourself of all these things that maybe you thought at one point you needed, but now was clear that your calling was to leave the stuff behind and to really move forward but, and just kind of be open to the next journey stage of the yeah it was i'd been in scotland exactly 10 years and i'd moved to scotland with a backpack lived in a hippie commune and there i was leaving scotland after 10 years with a mortgage and a house and all these friends and godchildren and relationships and and i remember i drove across the border from scotland to england and i was about driving to my brothers to give my brother my car but i stopped at the border and i opened a little bottle of whiskey that my friend had gifted me as a gift from scotland Mm. And uh, they said, you leave as a son of Scotland, do Scotland proud. 
and on the border between Scotland and England, I opened up the whiskey. And in our tradition, you always pour a little bit of whiskey to the earth because okay. you, you drink with you're giving a gift to the ancestors. I saluted Scotland and thanked her for 10 beautiful years. Yeah. You know, and I left, finally left England. I left from Heathrow Airport, which was many years ago was the last place I saw my mother alive. Because mm. when I was 19 years old, I left London from Heathrow Airport to come to the United States with a green card. And a few weeks later, my mother died. Mm. So, you know, you know, suddenly died. I was 19. And so I gave up my green card, went back home to look after my family my dad and my brother, and here I am at age 35, which is Dante's second life, standing in Heathrow Airport saying goodbye to my dad, my brother, and my nephew on my mother's birthday. Wow. And I said goodbye to them, and I arrived in the United States, and I lot processed on that plane. I was in that liminal space going from one place to another, mm-hmm. and the spiritual connections of, you know, really sort of coming home to me, well, the importance, the intention and kind of said a prayer of intention that I will go to this place and I will learn, I will build friends and I will build family and beautiful things will happen. Mm. Guide me. Yeah. And when I land in Raleigh, North Carolina, I went to sleep that night and then I woke up that next morning. Here I am in this new land. It was beautiful, big pine trees, sunny. And I'm sitting in the back garden with a cup of tea like this. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking out into the garden, and what comes to see me visits but a hummingbird. And this hummingbird comes right in front of me, and it looks at me in the eye, and it just floats there for about five seconds. Hmm. And it was like, welcome to America, and <laughs> flies away. <laughs> That's interesting. And I kind of just felt like, well, I don't know what tradition that comes from, but I'm sure there's hummingbirds of good fortune. I can't imagine it being bad fortune. Maybe it's my mother's spirit. I don't know. Right talked about the sort of the connection between the physical and the spiritual. And when you were talking about the idea of scrubbing the shoes, I mean, obviously like the, the reference, like you mentioned to Jesus washing the disciples feet, but I also thought about in the Christian monastic tradition about the, how you pray as you work and this idea of the physical and the spiritual kind of being intertwined. And then the idea of place and how that Heathrow airport was such a spiritual place for you because you had had such a powerful memory and a, such a powerful moment that it wasn't just a place. It was a spiritual experience wrapped up in that place. So it is really interesting, sort of this interconnection between the physical, whether that's our actions or the places, um, and, and how that engages our minds and our memories and how those narratives and those stories are powerful for us. They move us emotionally, but they also can move us forward towards this sense of calling and direction of how we're going to spend our time and our lives to actually make the world a more beautiful and loving place. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and it's interesting that what did I also come to study? I came to study folklore, Hmm. which I honed it in on, you know, a greater understanding of folkloric traditions and the understanding of folklore being more, more than just story, but it's how we make meaning Hmm. in the world. So Heathrow airport, is a place of meaning. Right. I have a personal, physical connection to this place, spiritual connection to this place. And then, you know, the opportunity to come to the United States and then get accepted this job, which is so rare to get a job within the folk traditions. Yeah. And it's one of the leading jobs in the country for a folk arts institution. Let's delve into that a little bit more. I mean, yeah, yeah. so many people, like you said, you were studying storytelling and studying the art of folk traditions, and yet you weren't aware of the International Storytelling Center in Jonesboro. Um, I know. It's kind of one of those best kept secrets that I know that one of your missions is to change that, right? So that people know that East Tennessee and Central Appalachia has this treasure and has this tradition of the art of storytelling. Like you can come to ETSU and study storytelling and get a master's degree in storytelling. Uh, Thousands and thousands of people come every fall to Jonesboro for the International Storytelling Center. So we have an appreciation for the art form. What are you doing to kind of promote that? And what is the Storytelling Center doing now? Maybe that it wasn't doing 
20 years ago. One of the things that was important to do, which Jimmy Neal used to do as well, was to ensure that we work beyond our sector. Of We don't just work within storytelling. Yeah. We work in healthcare, peace building, international development. We build alliances. So we, we build these alliances that help people to see the value of the art form in all traditions, in all disciplines, in science, technology, peace building, health. And that's kind of how we've been kind of exposing it. But we also work within our communities to ensure that storytelling doesn't just happen in Jones, but it happens everywhere. Right. So we advocate for storytelling too. Yeah. And we might be this think tank, but it can happen in your homes and your front porches. Partnerships with Google, you know, building partnerships with the Desmond Tutu Peace Foundation, with Rotary International, with NASA, JPL, Smithsonian. We've done projects even with the U.S. State Department. We've been invited to the White House. Hmm. You know, we've done all these different types of projects. And we do it in a way because we also, we want to spread the gospel of storytelling Mm -hmm. and its importance and its power and its potential. But at the same time, let people know we exist. Yeah. And building that intergenerational audience. And part of that on the ground means recruiting people as well so you know recruit education specialists and recruit communications officers we have a snapchat team during a festival we have an instagram team during a festival we have and we helping us re-envision what the storytelling means to uh, a millennial sure which is different to maybe a baby boomer but they there's connections but we've been doing a lot of that kind of work to expand what we do how we do it and why we do it who we do it for and going back, we never changed the mission, though. Sure. We never, ever changed the mission because we're still about connecting the world through story. So tell, give us kind of the scope of your organization. So you are a nonprofit. How many employees do you have? I, I have about 12 to 15 full and part-time salaried staff. And that includes professional staff that, you know, artistic directors, uh, finance director, uh, my assistant, part-time assistant, communications, education uh, officer full time. Uh, we have, you know, um, volunteer coordinators. We have our front of house. So we have these salaried staff um, mm-hmm. that are very essential for year round operations, year round work design. But then leading into a festival, like around May, June, July, we start recruiting and we have altogether in a year, I signed the checks for about 111 staff positions. But it's everything from about 70 storytellers, professional storytellers, um, as well as technicians, uh, catering, security. We create jobs. I also have additional staff that do projects, you know, with young people and 500 volunteers that help with planning and programming, you know, ticket takers. And they're generally from our region, but not always. And that's a real community building project that we do. Yeah. Um, supporting our volunteers as a is a community effort. Yeah, and we generate about eight million dollars every year for the local economy. There's a practical economic impact analysis to say because we exist, economic yeah. benefit to our region. And so, you know, we're a great example. We've been, you know, quoted a lot in like uh, New York Times and Huffington Post because we're one example. If I have an overall budget of about one point two million, but we generate nearly eight million dollars for the local economy. Yeah. So we're a great example of the power of the arts to create jobs. I get I give congressional evidence when I go to DC. So we yeah. do a lot of economic development studies and I help to promote that the value of the arts, not just for health and well being, but for our economic vitality and growing the economy to stimulate the economy. Kieran, you've shared some interesting thoughts about how we respond to this crisis and some connections to the post-Depression era. The New Deal had programs like the Public Works Administration, the Tennessee Valley Authority, that was really big to our region, the Agricultural Adjustment Act for Farmers, the whole alphabet soup of programs. Talk about the importance of the Federal Arts Commission and the idea of investing now in the humanities and in the arts. Absolutely. And I'll give you an example of how I think about that. So I've been doing these workshops over the last few weeks 
for with um, Ballard Health. And we've been doing this workshop at Franklin Wood Community Hospital. And we've been doing these workshops on narrative medicine. So trauma-informed storytelling approaches. Yeah. Basically, how they as medical teams on the front line can harness their own story so they can be better positioned to help others because they are going through all the worries and fear like any human being goes through. The fact that some of them can't be in contact with their own family members because they've got a job to do as an essential worker, yeah, which is to keep us alive, right? So one of the examples I'd say is that when you get on a plane and the steward goes, in case of a cabin pressure drop, oxygen mask will come from the ceiling, use it on yourself first before helping others. Mm-hmm. There's a reason they say that. They say it so you can be in a position of strength to help others. Yeah. But it's the same with story. Right? It's the same with story. When we harness our own stories, we understand we're making sense of the world, our soul, our connections, our processing, our emotions, what's important to us, our identity, our resilience. We draw from stories of courage and hope, better positioned to help others. We can listen better. We can help others. But the same goes, that is our humanities. So in a nation needs the oxygen mask right now, the humanities and the arts is helping us to harness, to look after ourselves. The humanities and the arts is the soul of a nation. It's our breathing apparatus. You know, all these things, the humanities, spirituality, civic identity, um, history, storytelling is part of all of that. Yeah. Without that, then we, what are we? And we un- if you don't understand who you are, how can you help others? You great deal was part of that, and I believe we should be doing that now. And those conversations are happening. And I'll give you one example, that conversation, and I've been having with the national folk and traditional arts community. A bunch of us got on a call yesterday, all across the country, all 50 states. And we've all been collaborating, thinking about our field as a whole. Mm-hmm. The example I shared at the end of the call was something that came from my assistant. And my assistant is a member of the local Presbyterian church. Mm-hmm. And she shared an example with the team. And the, the American Presbyterian church has the, the American Presbyterian uh, Disaster Fund. Yeah. And she shared an example of during Hurricane Katrina, when many nonprofits kind of rushed in to help and do things and wanted to be part of that service. It was, it was important. But the American Presbyterian Disaster Fund held back and they were criticized for doing so. But what they were actually doing was thoughtfully create and a plan for long-term recovery. Mm. And nine months later, went in for their assistance and they stayed for 10 years. Mm. And they stayed for 10 years and they were better positioned to help in that long-term recovery and help with people and other hurricanes and tornadoes that hit the South Coast yeah. and the East Coast since then. And I think that's our role. Story is not a tweet. It's not 140 characters. It's not about branding. It's about long-term understanding who you are, your identity, your soul, your, your longevity, and about sowing the seed for seven generations in the future. You know, it's long-term. And that's the approach that we are going to take as stewards of the art form. And that's what the approach I'd love folk and traditional artists to see our role as the arts and the humanities and what more important time in our national identity, in our national story, to pause and to say, how did we get here? You know, wh- how did we get to a situation where we have this kind of economic crisis? What were the things that we invested in or maybe didn't invest in that are making this crisis worse? I mean, also the inequalities that exist in our country, which is making, it's almost like a band-aid has come off and it's exposing the inequalities that already exist and why certain groups of people or low-income people, all, all different types of people are finding it harder. I'm in a place of privilege because I've got a house, yeah. I've got food, I've got a job. I'm actually one of the lucky ones. You know, not everybody has that. You know, not everybody can. Farm workers, for example, um, they're all essential the workers. And, you know, can they have six feet apart? Probably not. You know, yeah. they have to work. And Many people are working without insurance. And so there's a lot of inequalities it opens up. And I think that's part of our long-term recovery. And that's where story comes in as well. You know, how do we communicate the value of access to resources and healthcare and people's, and hearing people's stories 
allows us to empathize and understand different people's experiences. Yeah. Shouting people's opinions doesn't, but hearing people's stories of personal experiences helps us to listen, empathize, and understand. We don't have to agree, but at least we can build understanding. Through understanding, we build connection, and that ultimately leads to peace and, and a better world. So right now you've got a nonprofit organization, you've got a staff, you've got the long-term, what you see storytelling and the arts doing in response to COVID-19. But I mean, are you feeling those pressures right now? Like how reliant are you guys on fundraising in order to fund your ongoing operations? And I know in October is when the storytelling center or the festival happens. Is all that kind of on hold right now because you don't know how long the quarantining and all this is going to last? The only thing that's been canceled is the first May and June of our Telling Residence program. Okay. You know, we're keeping an eye on what the right thing to do is. And we also, at the same time, we're planning for plan B in case. And so plan B has kind of been an effort to think about drawing from the opportunity to create virtual programming and virtual projects and virtual presentations in a way that's quality based but gives that same kind of sense of community so we're designing things like that but we haven't um we're kind of preparing for all the different options and we've got a i've got my whole team on it in thinking about alternative programming so it's really important that even if we don't have a fest just saying if we don't have one then what we are doing is preparing for next year for recovery it's important that we survive yeah. so we can also employ. So 2021, we go back to rec- making 111 jobs. Yeah. How we create sustainability in the long term for the betterment of the community. And it's not just us. It's the town of Jonesboro. It's the community. We want restaurants to thrive. We want businesses to thrive. We want communities right. to thrive. And when we welcome 11,000, actually 26,000 people throughout the year through our doors, where do they stay? They stay in Johnson City, they stay in Grey, they stay in sure. Unicorn, they stay in Kingsport, and they eat in the restaurant and they tip really well. Everyone knows they tip real. Yeah. So it's <laughs> so not we want you feeling responsible for your staff, but it's being responsible for public health recommendations. But but you've got an eye to I as a leader of this organization, I know the impact that our event has on all these other businesses. Yeah, and I've, I've got one of my staff members kind of monitoring national sentiment. That's her task. And she's ciphering the information from the best advice, CDC, health experts. But she's also monitoring people's opinions. You know, we've been good with, because we got federal funds and our supporters, we've, we've managed to have some flexibility in our programming, which is good. Managed, I've, I haven't furloughed any staff. I've got everybody employed. Some of my staff are quarantined. Our intention is to do that as much as we can, as long as we can, um, because I think that's really essentially back to kind of making sure we can breathe. In the dark, if I open my heart and my eyes, I can see. Keeping up our fundraising campaign, you know, when I put the ask out, I believe the community will respond and see the value of what we're doing and what we're about. You know, we could always welcome a million dollars. I wouldn't say no to that. <laughs> yeah. You know, I would run down the street naked if I had to. I really, <laughs> I'll do it anyway. But like, point being, I would run down the street. If someone was to give a million dollars, I will walk down my street naked. <laughs> I'm not above uh, doing things that others may frown upon in order to uh, fund <laughs> yeah. my organization and keep my staff employed. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I've got some staff members working on grants nonstop, you know, and looking at opportunities, looking at kind of repurpose grants right now. And good thing is, though, some stuff has come through already so we can actually pay staff and keep our lights on. And some of our really good friends from foundations like East Tennessee Foundation, National Down for the Arts, National Down for Humanities, Tennessee Arts Commission, you know, they've come through and they're helping us, you know, being flexible with and helping us to kind of repurpose grants to keep uh, people employed, which is really good. So as a, I mean, I do fundraising for ETSU. So a lot of my work is individual donors, like alumni of the university or friends, people in the region. 
but I do work with some foundations, some large corporations, things like that. What is your funding mix? Are you guys pretty grant heavy in terms of grants from National Foundation for the Arts, some of these arts groups? Yeah. Do you have a lot of individual donors as well? We have a lot of individual donors. We, to be honest, when I took my position, I realized that we weren't really harnessing our grant potential Mm. um, as well as we could be. And I think that's partly, you know, that thing is like, why I didn't know about the center. And, and so we kind of fixed that as the first couple of years of, and then we, you know, applied to the NEA, the NEH, and now we get grants on the NEA, the NEH. We got support from Silicon Valley, an individual mm. from Silicon Valley who um, helped us with an operational grant because they love the work that we do to build national empathy, social empathy in the nation. And that particular individual is an entrepreneur. I won't say exactly who he is, but he's known. And he loved our work because of, um, he said, the country needs storytelling to build social empathy. Mm -hmm. So I flew out to San Francisco, wrote me a check there and then. On the off chance, I went for it, on the off chance, we'll get coffee together. It happened. Can you take that risk? People will meet with you. And they support us for a three-year grant to build our national programming to help storytelling to build empathy. We reach out to donors. We have campaigns such as our and friends of the festival. Mm-hmm. And we have people that have been coming to the festival that will uh, give individual gifts, many in our region, people on my board, including Nikki Nicewanga as well, and other people on our board that support us. And we also, but we also run like a business as well. We're a nonprofit, but we have a business model because it's important that we can also stand on our own two feet. The festival is our own business. Right. You have a revenue. It generates income. Yeah. And ticket sales. But it means what that funds, it funds 3,000 complimentary admissions for underserved youth. Yeah. It funds community building work we do in the community. We help businesses, you know, sometimes we work with Northeast Tennessee Economic Development Partnership and do, you know, work with them to help them think about how to tell the story of our region, the CBB. We've done that for with ETSU Multicultural Affairs, sure. um, Civility Week. We do all that because we think it's important to empower our region on how it tells its story. Yeah, a university in Alabama will pay me to go and give training, so I co- I, I charge them, and any money I make goes back into our center, right. so we can do this work locally as well. And that's kind of like how we how we work. Yeah. Um, but that has value too, because every time you go and you do a workshop and then somebody tweets about it, you're connecting with that Silicon Valley yeah. individual yeah. who says, this is important work. Me as a philanthropist, this is the kind of thing I want to invest in because this is the kind of ROI I want to see on my philanthropy. Uh, I want to see that I'm not only getting the tax write-off or whatever, but I want to be supporting something that I feel like makes a difference in the world or, in his words, helps create more social empathy built into the fabric of our nation. I started doing things to other states free and I thought, well, I can charge for this and the, everything I do can go back to the center. Yeah. So the state of Alabama called me in, hmm. the state of Idaho. So what we're doing, they bring all their people together yeah. on their cultural practitioners, artists, arts organizations, and I get to train all of them on how Idaho can tell its story how yeah. Alabama can tell its story, how South Carolina can tell its story. And I work with all these states. Yeah. And, I, and we could do it strategically, but we get paid. The money goes back into the center. And at the same time, we build an audience yeah. and, and a, a recognition. And we get, so it's a win-win situation. Sure. And I know a lot of organizations, even though they'll do that, or some speakers, you know, that they'll have a flat rate, but then they'll still, if, they're, if an organization contacts them or an individual that can't afford to bring them in, that they would pay it forward in a sense, like, okay, well, I'm going to cut my rate in half, or I'll come and do, you know, 10% of my speaking pro bono, just because I want to help tell our our story. And I want to help organizations that really could benefit from the expertise we have to offer, even if they can't afford to bring me in. Yeah, yeah, we, we do that as well. We do a lot of pro bono stuff. And we try to keep it very you know, for grassroots organizations that don't yeah. have a budget. You know, we do also do a lot of international. We do, we support a program in East Africa, in Uganda, that are trying to build a storytelling center because we think that's important. We've supported projects in Rwanda for women's empowerment, South Africa, um, India. 
we're doing a lot of stuff nationally as well with rural organizations. So we do a lot of stuff pro bono and obviously all our youth work is pro bono anyway. Like, you know, one organization, like one of my speaking engagements, hopefully it's postponed and not canceled. Yeah. Um, but they were paying $9,000 for me to go and work with that community for three days, hmm. which is great. And what I would do would be a public, a public lecture on the power of storytelling and yeah. three workshops for all their high school kids, mm. all their community leaders, all their community development leaders, and, and, and one open event for the public. But the idea is that we're designing it with them because what they're interested in, I won't say what town it is just yet because I think it's, you know, it wouldn't be right. But that particular town, they're, they're trying to, what they're trying to do is build more cohesiveness amongst the different cultural groups in that town in the South. It's a historically African-American town, mm. but pretty much almost 98% gentrified. Mm. So what they realize that, and so what they want to do is bring in the community leaders from all the different cultural backgrounds, and I would lead the workshop mm. about how we can collectively think about our collective story going forward as a community. So it's a design process. I mean, that sounds like a really powerful opportunity to really try to attack the issue of race and the history of racial, I mean, because gentrification is predominantly a racial and a socioeconomic issue, right? I mean, when we lived in Chicago, we were in a gentrifying neighborhood where there were a ton of apartment buildings and people were moving into South Evanston and buying up these apartment buildings, converting them to luxury condos, and basically driving out low-income, diverse families that couldn't afford to live there anymore. And so our church had an affordable housing ministry that was basically also trying to acquire buildings, but then just keep them affordable in order to promote diversity and to ensure that people had affordable places to live. So, I mean, but the way that you're bringing different stakeholders together to say, what's happening in our community? How do we frame it? How do we understand it? And let's listen to different people's points of view about how this gentrification is affecting them. You're kind of using storytelling as a way to bring community development, but that's the kind of peace building component too, right? You're, you're bringing about the ability for people to say, I need to see this from somebody else's point of view and recognize that while it's been good for me, it might've been harmful for them. And maybe we need to think differently about whether this is or isn't a good thing for our community to be embracing. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's, I mean, it's all kind of, a lot of the issues, whether it's about race, health, income disparity, socioeconomic, it's all very, it's all interrelated. And a lot of it comes back down to understanding somebody else, understanding, building empathy to see life from their perspective. And it kind of, you know, some of our work has actually been funded by the health sector. We've done, we did an event last year that was funded from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And it was a convening for tackling the issue of persistent poverty in the South and Mm -hmm. in Appalachia. And they funded that and it was through uh, Neighbor Works America and FAHI, you know, Federation of Appalachian Housing Authority. They brought in people, there's a few, quite a few hundred people there, but it was like many people try to address the issue of poverty and persistent poverty in the South, which goes back, you know, many, a long time. It relates to race, but not just race. It's, you know, it's many, many issues, you know, yeah, I mean, that interrelates, but it's also, you know, we, we've done training for, like, for example, economic development, yeah. um, TVA economic development. So we do it for economic development people so they understand that also what they're doing in building a flourishing community is fostering a culture of working together and how stories can be this glue because it's not a fixed story. Story is flexible. It's a flexing identity. So your story matters, my story matters, our stories matter, but we can also have the opportunity to create stories together as well by recognizing, recognizing the beauty that exists in both our stories and the threads of our stories that unite us. Yeah. My favorite quote, which is one I use all the time, you actually buy the t-shirt in the gift store. So please buy the t-shirt on our <laughs> online gift store and support Wait, the Where do we go? Center. What's the website? Where do we go? Storytellingcenter.com net it's storytellingcenter.net you can go on our gift store you can buy stuff or you can make a gift you can make a donation and you can support the world's oldest art form 
and you can help our programs. You can get involved. You can buy a ticket or you can just tell a friend and tell a story. And you're also supporting our mission in that way. Share your story, harness your own story, listen to somebody else's. And that supports our mission. But the this quote that I love is by Irish storyteller Pat Speet that said that story, the closest distance between two people. I love it. And you can take that idea in a big festival, on your front porch, in a Zoom conversation, on a if you're talking to your children, your elders, whoever it is, story is the closest distance between two people. And that essentially is what we do and what we promote and what we keep alive. This has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you reflecting on uh, your own spirituality, your own faith. I appreciate the work you do for our region, for our community, uh, promoting the arts across the nation. Uh, We are privileged to have you and to have the Storytelling Center here in our community. And I'm really glad that we had the opportunity to chat today. So thanks so much, Kieran. Thank you, Aaron. God bless you. All right. Blessings on you, brother. Take care. All right. Take care. See you. And you ignite a flame inside our hearts, inside our What a wonderful interview with Kieran. One of the biggest things I, I was challenged by was this idea of stories having meaning and being something that can serve for us as a spiritual guide to help us better understand not only our own lives, but also better understand building empathy and understanding of others. It seems to me that's something that's very vital for us to be thinking about and that the world really needs more of at this time. Certainly, I'm not perfect at or good at, and that's part of what this podcast is about, is uh, challenging myself and just inviting you into that journey with me to think about what it means to try to develop some perspective and to learn from other people what it looks like to be generous. Hopefully this conversation was as inspiring to you today uh, as it was to me. Well, if you find conversations like the one that we had with Kieran from the International Storytelling Center, helpful, powerful, inspiring, challenging, uh, please help others find the podcast. There's a number of ways you can do that. Uh, Please check us out on our Facebook page. You can also find us on Twitter and on Instagram. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, and that's a great place where you can give us a rating and a review, which will help raise our profile and let other people who have not heard about the podcast find out about it. You can also listen on Google Podcasts, and we certainly appreciate you sharing um, our website, which is www.unleashedgenerosity.org, and there you or others can subscribe so that you're notified by email the next time that a new episode airs. So thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks so much for helping spread the word. Until next time, unleash your own generosity. Fight the darkness